I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the prophecy of Isaiah once again. As we continue in these Lord's days to make our way through this book of Scripture, we are continuing right now through the oracles, they're called in Isaiah, that he delivered on God's behalf against the nations. Only this morning with something of a strange uh, twist and remarkable. So far we've seen Isaiah in his divinely inspired uh, words setting his sights on Babylon, actually a couple of times, and Assyria, and Moab, and Damascus, and Cush, and Egypt, and Philistia, and Edom, and Arabia. Now, those sights are set on Judah, God's own people, where is found Jerusalem and Mount Zion, and there the temple, the visible representation of God's presence with them, and their confidence of invincibility, or so they thought. As it turns out, Judah had become darkened in her thinking, as indicated by the title Isaiah uses to speak of Judah in the very first verse of today's passage, the Valley of Vision. Like the uh, title that he used last, as we saw last week, and applied to Babylon in chapter 21, this title is also one marked by satire and irony. Jerusalem, Mount Zion, Isaiah says, is in a valley. The valley of vision, he says, where in fact no real vision is found. She has become darkened in her thinking, and terrible consequences are soon to fall upon the church of Isaiah's day, a fact that causes this prophet bitterly to weep. Another weeping prophet. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your scripture says, and we remember from our time in Romans, that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. So we pray, O God, that you will instruct us from this, your word. Write it upon our hearts and change our lives. O God, we would more and more be conformed to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ by the power of your word, by the power of your spirit working through the word, we pray. And you will do this even now. For your glory... We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 22. The oracle concerning the valley of vision. What do you mean that you have gone up, all of you, to the housetops? You who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town. Your slain are not slain with the sword or dead in battle. All your leaders have fled together without the bow. They were captured. All of you who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. Therefore I said, look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult 
and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision. A battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. And Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen and Kir uncovered the shield. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots and the horsemen took their stand at the gates. He has taken away the covering of Judah. And that day you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest. And you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool and you counted the houses of Jerusalem and you broke down the, horses, the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to Him who did it or see Him who planned it long ago. And that day the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth, and behold, joy and gladness and killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The Lord of hosts has revealed Himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to this steward, to Shibna, who is over the household, and say to him, What have you to do here? And whom have you here that you cut out here a tomb for yourself? You who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die. And there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from office, and you'll be pulled down from your station. And that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue, every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, and it will be cut down and fall, and the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. 
Isaiah is not yet finished with his oracles. He's yet to deliver his burden, as we can translate the word oracle, his, his oracle against Tyre, as we'll see next week, the Lord willing. But that raises an interesting question. Where does the judgment of God's own people fall in Isaiah? In Isaiah's prophecy. He does not begin with them and then finish by looking outward. Nor does Isaiah exhaust the nations around Judah and then finish with judgment on her. No, Judah stands here shoulder to shoulder, side by side with the wicked nations around her when it comes to the judgment of God. The lesson here seems clear. Judah should tremble. They thought themselves somehow exempt from the judgment of God, from punishment above those nations around her. But the fact is, they blend right in. Blend right in with the wicked nations around them. A lesson, no doubt, for the church today. God is no respecter of persons, and rebellion against him is simply that. Regardless of what quarter it appears and rises from, Judah's wickedness was now so great and so full that she was virtually indistinguishable from the nations around her, no longer even a distinctly covenantal people. If the nations around Judah worshipped idols, so did Judah. Did the unregenerate around Judah burn their children as sacrifices? So did Judah. King Ahaz burned his own child as a sacrifice to Molech, as did Manasseh. God had given Judah his law. He had put his temple in their midst. He'd made them many great and precious promises that were all theirs. they but receive them by faith. Instead, they, like their neighbors, got everything just exactly backwards. The faithful covenant God of Israel had given them a clear set of priorities by which to live, and they turned every one of them on their head, and now judgment is coming. Now, everything in Scripture, being as we uh, prayed, as Paul wrote to the Romans, uh, I say everything in Scripture being for our instruction, we'll do well to take some lessons for the lives of our own uh, church, for our own lives, from the lives of our spiritual fathers and mothers. The Israel of God today, particularly in this place and this day in the world, the church that is, is alas more and more every day like the church of Isaiah's day with everything backwards partying when we should be weeping, looking to man instead of looking to God, depending on earthly things instead of throwing ourselves in dependence upon him, setting up kingdoms for ourselves on earth instead of laying up treasures in heaven, thinking ourselves strong when in ourselves we are weak. 
These are some of the ways that they had things just backwards and the way that we do far too often too. May God realign our lives with his truth even this morning by the power of his word on several fronts. Consider them with me this morning, holding up, as the Bible says, God's law as a mirror now to ourselves and acting on what we see. I think you will find, because it's our common experience among us, that there are at least three ways that we put things just backwards and need constantly to put them right again. First, we get things backwards when we put rejoicing before weeping. Now, you've been following this series in Isaiah. Uh, Those of you who have know that we've already had an entire sermon given to godly weeping and sorrow, so I'll not belabor the point, but to take a moment now and notice how wrong it is, how offensive it is really to God for us to be laughing and partying when it's time for weeping and repenting. Isaiah begins his rebuke in verse 1 by asking, What do you mean that you've gone up, all of you, to the housetops? Well, what are they doing on the housetops? Well, you remember that uh, the housetop was a place for social activities, for throwing parties and, and shouting and, and reveling. That's what the housetop was used for in those days. Now, uh, brothers and sisters, there is a time for partying. And there is a time for rejoicing and for laughter and shouting and dancing, to be sure. And God's word tells us as much. But it's not time for shouting and dancing and partying when God is called for grieving and mourning and wailing. Verse 12, In that day the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for boldness and wearing sackcloth, and behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep and eating flesh and drinking wine. They even go so far as to make it a commonplace saying among them, Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Party on. Through his... Prophets and by his providence, God had made it clear to Judah that she should be weeping and grieving over her sins at this time. She should be repenting in dust and ashes, but God finds her instead throwing a wild party. You don't know exactly the immediate consequences, uh, uh, um, uh, circumstances that lie behind this passage, but it is not at all beyond the scope of reason to surmise that what may just have taken place at this time is a serious attack upon Ashdod, a city in Philistia to Judah's west, uh, along with uh, a concurrent takeover by the Assyrians of Azekah, a city to the northwest of Judah, which would have been a very, very close call for Judah the Assyrians practically on their front porch. Followed by the withdrawal of Assyrian troops from that city and a collective sigh of relief by Judah. That would explain the revelry that's going on in Jerusalem now. One commentator uh, imagines them saying together, well, I guess Isaiah was wrong and, and uh, you know, Babylon was right. Uh, We needn't fear the Assyrians after all. 
It should have been an occasion for repentance, for turning back to God, this shot across the bow of Mount Zion. Instead, they party and lace those parties with fatalistic toasts. Eat and drink, tomorrow we die. Here we learn a lesson for ourselves. There is a time to weep. Blessing, Jesus said, comes to those who first mourn, who are grieved by sin, particularly by their own, and who seek forgiveness and peace where only it can be found in Christ. And then comes rejoicing. Not the other way around. We have it just backwards. Turn on your television. Well, second thought, don't turn on your television. Evangelists, many popular evangelists in America today are calling for rejoicing and partying because of Jesus, because of Jesus. Party, rejoice because of Jesus. They proclaim a gospel of prosperity and happiness. But they leave out one terribly important thing. You can't rejoice until you've wept. Joy, genuine, lasting, real joy does not come before repentance from sin. Celebration comes after contrition. Or to put it another way, the good news is only good if first you have the bad news. This being the case, brothers and sisters, we're, we're, we're not only getting it backwards, we're, we're actually forgetting an entire part of the equation. Repentance. And forgetting that, we've put many, many people. And forgetting that, we put ourselves in the most terrible peril of all because the sin of partying when you should be repenting a sin for which there is no atonement, according to verse 14. Now, it's not as though God wants a church full of morose, constantly morose Christians, always preoccupied by their sins. Of course not. It is precisely to free you from your sin that he has come. But there is no freedom from sin, you see, for those who will not even recognize that they're sinful. Don't get to rejoicing until first you've done some repenting and don't get them backwards. And may we recognize that there is a place, even in a Christian's ongoing life, for mourning and grieving for his sin before the Lord, particularly in those times when the Lord is applying, as he promises to in his word, applying the rod of his discipline to our backs. A second way we get things backwards, just backwards, is by trusting in man or in things rather than trusting in God. And that, too, has been a commonplace in Isaiah's prophecy. We've heard it before. Underlying the entire book, in fact, to this point, has been this one simple question. In whom will you trust? Which question has been forced to the surface over and again in these pages. Here it appears again. It's uncertain whether Isaiah is describing an event in Judah's 
future or in her past in verses 5 through 8 in which Judah finds herself surrounded by the chariots of the enemy. Sieges on Jerusalem had taken place and would again by Assyria's army and then by Babylon, as we remembered in the adult Sunday school class this morning, who would totally destroy Jerusalem in 586. Identifying which event Isaiah describes here is not really the important point. The real question is, when these things happened to Jerusalem, when they were surrounded by the chariots of the enemy, where did she look for help? Or just as importantly, or more importantly, where did she not? When trouble came, she looked to her weapons, to her walls, and to her water. That's where she turned her eyes. Verse 8, And that day you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest. Interesting little title there. House of the forest was a name that had been given to a building in Jerusalem in which they stored the royal arsenal of weapons. Continuing on in verse 9, you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. The walls of Jerusalem, of course, were very thick for protection. They became even thicker when they started tearing down houses and using the uh, rubble, the demolition material, to fortify those walls even more. Verse 11, you made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. Water, as you remember, was Jerusalem's, uh, among Jerusalem's chief concern, uh, concerns in the case of a siege. So Judah and Jerusalem, they looked to her weapons and her walls and her water, but, going on in verse 11, but you did not look to him. Who did it? Or see him who planned it long ago. In other words, I didn't look to God. You and I do the same thing. Let's just be frank and confess it from our hearts. I know I do. Some crisis hits, some challenge comes, the enemy is knocking at the door, and what do you do? You begin looking to your own wits, to your own resources. First question, how much money do we have left in the checkbook right now? Do we know any specialists who know how to deal with this? We look around, in other words, at the weapons and the water and the walls. We don't look up to God. In other words, we get it just backwards. The first place to look is always God. He's our strength. He's our power. He's our defender. He's our provider. He's our healer. He's our leader. Did we in our own strength confide? You know the rest. Our striving would be losing, wrote Luther, but a mighty fortress. A mighty fortress indeed is our God. Not that we don't fight, of course, or that we don't take up weapons or build strategic walls or take practical steps. Of course we do. But there's an order to it. Remember 
Oliver Cromwell's instructions to his Puritan troops during the English Civil War. Trust in God and keep your powder dry. It's both. But don't get them turned around. Finally, a third way that we get things backwards is by laying up treasures on earth and earth instead of in heaven. That is what we find this this scoundrel of a leader in Judah, this steward, Shebna, doing in verse 16, to whom Isaiah says on God's behalf, "Uh, what have you to do here? Uh, And whom have you here that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself? You who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. Hello, Shebna, disaster's about to fall. On Judah, God is calling the people to repentance. It's time for the leaders to steer the people of God back to Him. And what are you doing? You're busy carving a fancy tomb for yourself. For your carcass. Archaeologists have unearthed some beautiful tombs that were carved into the rock. And some have even said or claimed that they found Shebna's tomb. Can't you just imagine him riding up on his fancy municipal chariot? That's one of the perks of his position. Riding up in his fancy chariot to check out the progress on his tomb, only to find Isaiah standing right there, waiting to say to him, What are you doing? What is this? God says he's going to hurl Shebna away, whirl him around and around, and throw him like a ball into a a wide land. Somehow, I think if archaeologists have really found Shebna's tomb, I doubt that they found Shebna occupying it. It sounds to me like he probably died somewhere else, maybe in captivity in Babylon. The point is, Shebna, like Judah at large, was more interested in the things of earth, even in places of burial, than in the things of God. C.S. Lewis uh, reminds us that uh, setting desires on earth, heaven is lost. Aim at heaven, he writes, and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, you get neither. Shebna reminds me of something in Randy Alcorn's wonderful little book, The Treasure Principle. Alcorn writes this, in 1988, when our daughters were seven and nine, Nancy and I and the girls took a two-month trip in which we visited missionaries in Egypt, Kenya, Greece, and Australia. It was during that trip, while staying with Pat and Rachel in Egypt, that we saw Borden's grave. The streets of Cairo were hot and dusty. Our missionary friends took us down an alley. We drove past Arabic signs to a gate that opened to a plot of overgrown grass. It was a graveyard for American missionaries. As my family and I followed, Pat pointed to a sun-scorched tombstone that read, William Borden, 1887 to 1913. 
Borden, a Yale graduate and heir to great wealth, you all know about the Borden Company, check the shelves on your kitchen, in your kitchen cabinets. Borden, a Yale graduate to, and heir to great wealth, rejected a life of ease in order to bring the gospel to Muslims. Refusing even to buy himself a car, Borden gave away hundreds of thousands of dollars to missions. Now bear in mind, that's the end of the 19th century. Hundreds of thousands of dollars he gave to missions. Only after uh, four months of zealous ministry in Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis and died at the age of 25. I dusted off the epitaph on Borden's grave after describing his love and sacrifices for the kingdom of God and for Muslim people. The inscription ended with a phrase I've never forgotten, quote, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life, end quote. The Thurmans took us straight from Borden's grave to the Egyptian National Museum. The King Tut exhibit was mind-boggling. Tutankhamun, the boy king, was only 17 when he died. He was buried with solid gold chariots and thousands of golden artifacts. His gold coffin was found within gold tombs within gold tombs, within gold tombs. The burial site was filled with tons of gold. The Egyptians believe in an afterlife, one where they could take earthly treasures, but all the treasures intended for King Tut's eternal enjoyment stayed right where they were until Howard Carter discovered the burial chamber in 1922. They hadn't been touched for more than 3,000 years. I was struck, he continues, by the contrast between these two graves. Borden's was obscure, dusty, and hidden off the back alley of a street littered with garbage. Tut's tomb glittered with unimaginable wealth. Where are these two young men now? One who lived in opulence and called himself a king is in the misery of a Christless eternity. The other, who lived a modest life on earth in service of the one true king, is enjoying his everlasting reward in the presence of the Lord. That, brothers and sisters, or may I say those, are the ultimate consequences of getting things backwards or forwards, why, which is why it is so desperately important that we get first things first. Our spiritual ancestors in Judah wanted their lives to be one great big party in life, trusting in weapons and walls for protection while carving fancy tombs for themselves in death. And in their pursuit of happiness, they lost it all. The 
party was crashed, the walls were smashed, and the tombs went to somebody else. But the one who by grace gets the order right, thinking, seeking first the will of God for his life day by day from a stance of repentance and faith, looking to the power of God and not relying on her own strength, and seeking the things of heaven, not pursuing the things of earth. In other words, as Jesus puts it, the one who first loses himself. That's the person who truly finds himself. Amen.